It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. What better way to celebrate Cinco de Mayo than with the latest edition of the Pipeline Podcast presented by John Deere. Matt Waymeyer in today, and we've got a full, full house. We've got our two Pipeline gurus, as always, Jonathan Mayo with Jim Callis, and our special guest today, MLB.com national correspondent, Jesse Sanchez. And uh, to all three gentlemen, thank you for joining us for today's Pipeline Podcast. And uh, Jesse, want to kind of start with you because the, the topic today, the top 30 international prospect list, which can be found right now on MLB.com. And Jesse, when we're talking top 30, talk about the players that are eligible to make this list and players that are that are not and the reasons that they're not and kind of what went into making this top 30. The international signing period, you know, it's obviously one of the most important times of the year for major league teams. I think some teams, general managers, you know, they compare it to, you know, the uh, first-year player draft that time. They compare it to July 31st, you know, the start of free agency. And basically the July, I mean, international signing period starts on July 2nd and it runs through June 15th of the next year for uh, teenage players 16 years old. And this is where teams accumulate their talent. You know, they, they stock their systems in hope of trying to grab the next Miguel Cabrera or Felix Hernandez. But a lot of times what they're doing is they're filling their system with minor leaguers. It's their opportunity to be aggressive. Uh, our top 30 international prospects list is made up from of players from all around the world. I mean, from Cuba, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Mexico. And this year, as in most years, there are going to be several prospects eligible to sign from you know, places like the Bahamas, Aruba, even Germany. I mean, there's Russia, South Africa. I mean, tons of players uh, registered to become eligible to, to, you know, be signed their international signing period. Whether they do or not to be determined on how scouts view their ability. But it's a, it's an international event. It's a, it's a big time in baseball and obviously viewed as a, something very important. And Jesse, as you just rattled off all the countries that are involved uh, with this process of formulating a top 30, I mean, we're talking really the the cream of the crop here in terms of international prospects literally all over the world. And I think that the consensus number one guy on the top 30 list is a guy, or I should say a young man, <laughs> who's if he's even that at this age. He's been scouted since he was 13 years old. He's now 16 and only been 16 since February, I believe. His name is uh, Kevin Maiton and... Uh, Jesse, from what you've uh, written about him and, and said about him, this guy has all the tools to become a real, real standout player. You know, there's tons of praise been heaped on Maiton. I mean, people have said he's the best international prospect to come out since Miguel Sano with the Twins, and I think we see what kind of success he's had so far and, you know, what he's projected to have. They've compared him to Miguel Cabrera coming out of Venezuela. Uh, I've even heard people say, you know, he has the potential to be somebody like a Chipper Jones. You know, he's a power-hitting switch you know, switch hitter, he hits well from the both sides of the plate. You know, he's a, he has a good glove, strong arm. He plays shortstop now, but at 6'2", 165, I think they feel he's going to get bigger. And I don't think anybody's going to be surprised if he ends up at third base. Uh, he, people just love his, like, his baseball IQ, his makeup. He is, you know, what 
scouts like, what international scouts like, what front office people you know, fall in love with. At the same time, I guess you got to keep in mind, he's still 16, and a lot can happen between now and 18. A lot could happen between 16 and 17. So these are just projections, and you know they're high hopes for guys like Maiton, but I think people really see the tools there, and they just hope he turns into the player they, you know, they wish he can be. And Jesse, how much of a bonus do you think my time's going to command? I mean, I think it's been kind of a open secret for a while. This is a guy who the Braves have their sights on. It sounds like, and I think for a while, that the people have you know, figured that the Braves are going to be the team that lands him. How much of a bonus do you think he's going to wind up commanding? You know, I mean, reports out there he's going to command somewhere near $4 million. I mean, I can't confirm that, but I think that's been written there, and that's kind of the, you know, the buzz. I think we'll find out more actually on actually on uh, July 2nd when he actually signs. But I think that's kind of the uh, the range people are talking about, the 3.5 to 4 or maybe just a little bit over 4. I mean, that's a lot of money. And the Braves are going, you know, he's been linked to them. Several several reports, several publications have the Braves linked to him, and maybe that could be true. And if, if so, you know, they're really a team like the Braves or anybody's really investing a lot of money in this young man. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. to you, is, is there a guy, you know, we've, we've talked about the amateur draft uh, coming up in, in June, you know, uh, domestically, of course, and is there a guy that scouts are in love with with that group of prospects? Uh, are they heaping the kind of praise on anybody in the United States that scouts are heaping on internationally to Kevin Maiton, do you think? No, I don't, I don't think there's that guy this year uh, in terms of, uh, the all-around tool package, Jim. If, if you know, feel free to disagree, but I don't. I don't yeah, think no, there no, is that that jump out at you, toolsy, compared to all-star kind of player uh, in, in this year's draft class, and um, yeah, at least not that 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 I can see. You know, it's, it's hard to compare. Um, you know, especially if you're trying to compare a, a 16-year-old to a 21-year-old college junior. Uh, but I don't. I don't see that kind of praise being heaped upon anybody in the draft class. There's nobody with that potential type of bat who's an infielder in this year's crop. I mean, maybe the closest would be Delvin Perez, but I think there are questions about his – I mean, he has the upside, has some upside, but there are questions about his bat. There's nobody in the draft who combines Maiton's – Offensive potential and the ability to play the infield. I, there just isn't that guy. You know, and the, co- the best college infielder would be somebody like Nick Senzel, and his power is not nearly as good as Kevin Maiton's. Yeah, I don't think it's because it kind of leads to a, a question I had, uh, and I, you know, I don't even know if there's an answer to it. Um, you know, obviously, teams have been very active on the international front, some more than others, uh, some blowing past you know, the, the bonus restrictions and incurring penalties, and we can get touch on that in a minute. But, uh, you know, and maybe this is for, for, for Jim and Jesse and for me to consider, I, you know, do teams look at a draft class and say, well, boy, this, this year's draft class isn't so good, so we're going to be more active on July 2nd? Or is it is that too much comparing apples to, to oranges there? Uh, and, and do they just look at, year-to-year, uh, year, say, international classes where, okay, next year's international class isn't so good, so we're going we're gonna to go nuts this year and not worry about next year. You know, you know, I've talked to, you know, the international scouts. They're obviously just focused on doing their job and trying to get, you know, the international talent. I've talked to some of the domestic guys, and 
you know, they have their focus on, you know, the domestic side. But I have had a chance to have some conversation with some GMs and assistant GMs, and they tell me um, it's all part of the same, you know, it's another piece in a the puzzle. They're connected, you know, and I think, I don't know if uh, you really separate one or the other. I think they're, they're there to complement each other. I don't think you can get all the talent from the international side. And I think there's also the belief you can't get all of your talent from the domestic side. I mean, if you look at a team like the Padres this year, as we all know, you know, they traded tons of prospects when A.J. Breller came over there as a general manager. They traded tons of prospects. I think what they're looking, the Padres are going to be very aggressive on the international market this year. And the word is what they want to do is, you know, sign as many top international guys, be aggressive as they can, and take advantage of all the picks they have in their draft and just restock their system. So I think uh, teams like the Padres and I think other teams probably use a similar strategy. You know, they just use this as an opportunity to you know, kind of complement each other, uh, bring their, you know, their bring their system back up, and uh, we will see. We'll see. I mean, there's a lot of projection here. I even you know, taking college kids, taking high school kids in the draft, how are they going to plan out? And taking 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds out of international signing guidelines. I mean, you really don't know how they're going to play out and how long it's going to take for them to develop. But I think, you know, a team like the Padres and other teams probably just trying to, you know, grab from both sides and, you know, get back on track. Yeah, and I would say just to follow up on that, I agree with Jesse. I don't think it's an either-or where you necessarily, you know, look at one crop being down and go the other crop. And I just think the penalties are so different for going over your bonus pool in the draft versus internationally that they get treated differently. In the draft, you go over by more than 5%, you start forfeiting first-round picks. Nobody's done that. I don't think anybody's ever going to do that unless it's some kind of clerical error or somebody fails a physical and it screws up the signing late. Um, and teams pretty much spend to their pool. You know, you can you know, spend, you know, the $100,000 on guys without penalty after the 10th round, and so some teams are a little bit more aggressive down there. But teams pretty much spend to their pool for the most part, and if they spend under the pool, it's usually because a guy failed a physical and didn't sign, whereas internationally, the penalties are, are more slap on the wrist where, you know, you could, if you go over your bonus pool by a certain amount, you can't sign players for more, an individual player for more than $300,000, if I'm correct, Jesse, I think for the next two signing periods. Right. But at the same time, if you load up one year, it's kind of like you're front-loading it. Like, okay, I'll maybe step back for the next two years, but I'm going to go crazy in this present year. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, <laughs> I have hard enough time keeping track of the draft, Jesse, and I can't imagine trying to keep right. track of international. But there's there's <laughs> ten teams, I believe, right, that can't sign a guy for more than 300000 this year because they've gone over their pool one of the last two years. By my count, was it the Angels, Blue Jays, Cubs, Diamondbacks, Dodgers, Giants, Rays, Red Sox, Royals, and Yankees. Does that right. sound right? Yes. Yeah, and then the crazy thing is, when you were talking about, you know, the guys on your list are subject to the signing pools. Now, all those teams, they can go nuts for Cubans who aren't subject to the signing pools because I believe they're, what, 23 years or older and they've played at least five years in Cuba's top league. All those teams can spend whatever they want on a player who's not subject to the signing pool. So even though the Dodgers spent an unbelievable amount of money last year, we may still see the Dodgers go crazy for a Cuban prospect who, who isn't subject to the pools. And I, I know I'm, I'm getting off the track here a little bit. The Cubans on your list, namely, you know, I think your top two guys are Vladimir Gutierrez and then Lazarito, 
Are they subject to the July 2 rules, or can they sign before then? Uh, they they were declared eligible. Uh, Vladimir Gutierrez, he's a guy who defected from Cuba in 2015 during the Caribbean series in San Juan. He was declared eligible to sign uh, July 7th of last year. So he's actually been el- eligible during the last period. So uh, I think he's, you know, if he doesn't sign before, you know, June 15th, he's going to sign during the next period. So he's actually eligible to sign right now, but under the international signing guidelines. And right. what about Lazarito? Can, can Lazarito sign now? You know, Lazarito is another guy. He could either sign during the current international period that started last July 2, or he can wait until July 2nd. And that all depends on, you know, what teams are available, what teams are over the pool, how much does, how much do the agents for Lazarito value him? Can he go? You know, do they feel like he can maximize his opportunities if they sign him now with teams like the Dodgers who are still in play now but won't be in play during the next period? Or they feel like there's going to be another club who's going to sign him? So, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Uh, those two guys, they're eligible to sign. I mean, they're eligible to sign right now. But I think the feeling is they're still kind of, exam- uh, you know, kind of examining their options, see if it suits them better to sign during the current period or during the next period. And I guess ultimately, the, you know, the broad thing is, you know, they're under the international signing guidelines. You know, they fit under the scope, uh, you know, of, of these bonus pools. And they're just trying to figure out, you know, what's best. And, and I guess, it's, you know, a lot of that comes down to, too, like if I'm a team like the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Rays and my pool is, you know, I can't pay a guy more than $300,000, once the next signing period starts, I'm trying to sign these guys now. If I can make it happen, how good are those two guys? I know they're they're number two and number four on your list, and Gutierrez is the top pitcher. Can you give us a, a brief scouting report uh, on both those guys because they both sound very very interesting? Yeah, Vladimir, um, he's a little bit farther along. He's 20 years old. He had a case uh, recently in Clearwater. You know, a lot of scouts went down there, and and what they were telling me is he was throwing in the low 90s, uh, 91, 92. I think he hit 94 at times. He had a a you know, pretty good uh, curveball, you know, 76 and 78. I think he added a change and a split. I think there were some scouts were telling me, uh, obviously, with the young pitchers, he could still use some better command. He's still working on the command there. But I think uh, he's the kind of guy teams feel he's probably a couple years away. You know, he'll be 21 in September. So they feel like he's a guy who, you know, might be closer to the major leagues. I mean, I wouldn't say he's major league ready. Like, as with most Cuban players, they're going to need some time, you know, to get used to playing in a minor league, to get used to that level of competition, get used to the travel. And then you got to keep in mind all the other things that come on outside of the field, just adjusting to life in the United States. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a guy like Vladimir Gutierrez two or three years away, you know, maybe getting a cup of coffee, just, just a sniff in the big leagues, and, or maybe sticking around. But he's a really interesting guy. Uh, Lazarito's a little bit farther away. Uh, he's a young guy, uh, 16 years old, but he has all the tools that, you know, scouts really like. I mean, the body, everybody describes him to me as like a uh, college football free safety. I mean, he's really built. And I had some good conversations with him in the Dominican Republic recently. And, you know, he is what they describe him as. He is a, a physical specimen. And I think over the past few weeks, over the past month or so, he's been working specifically with a trainer down there. Uh, named Javier Rodriguez, who's trained some big leaguers, Yasmani Tomas, a bunch of these uh, Cuban big leaguers, and they're working on refining his swing, uh, getting it more under control. Uh, Lazarito uh, is a fascinating 
talent. I mean, there's also the backstory where he signed with Culture 39. Uh, the owner of that is Charles Harrison, the cousin of Jerry Harrison from the famous Harrison family. Um, Harrison stopped representing him because he said one of Lazarito's investors, someone who basically pays for everything that Lazarito does, housing, clothing, all this type of stuff, threatened him. Next thing you know, Harrison resigns as a representative. Uh, Octagon steps in. You know, there's some kind of conflict there. And I think a uh, funny thing, Lazarito, he has his own, I think he has his own logo. I think they wanted to start a clothing uh, you know, a closing design, closing line for him. So the Harrisons still own a part of that, if that ever, you know, takes off. But uh, so there was just a whole lot going on with Lazarito. I mean, I think he's kind of been under the radar the past few weeks, maybe over the past month and a half or so, to get back to baseball, to get back to not being, you know, this guy who's going to have his own design team, get back to being the guy who's not going to be, you know, in front of cameras all the time, just get back to baseball. And it's going to be really interesting to see who signs him. Jesse, that uh, that tension aside, uh, you know, it seems that there are more Cubans on this list than than in the past. I'm curious what you know in, when you're talking to uh, all of the <clears throat> all of the Latin American scouts you do with the, the the easing of some overall tensions between the United States and Cuba. Do do people see that opening up more? There being more of a pipeline from from Cuba, and how quickly? they see that, you know, that floodgate opening? You know, I mean, you know, the Cuban market has had a big impact on, you know, on the international from, you know, international directors all the way up to GMs. They're paying attention. But the reality is there's still a lot of political hurdles for, uh, you know, U.S. and MLB is free to sign players right out of Cuba. So what that means is, you know, Vladimir Gutierrez, Armenteros, uh, you know, Lazarito, Jonathan Machado, all these guys on our list, they defected, you know, either, you know, through a tournament or late-night escape. They defected the same way Jose Abreu did. So in that way, things haven't changed. I think uh, in the future, you know, I went down to Cuba in, in December for the MLB Goodwill Tour and went back for the Rays, you know, play the national team in March. And what I saw there was like kind of an opening of dialogue between MLB and like the Cuban Baseball Federation, you know, trying to understand each other, see what each other wants, I think. From MLB's perspective, they're kind of seeking an easier path so these Cuban players don't have to escape, defect, uh, deal with human trafficking, and all these kind of, you know, elements that, you know, nobody really wants to be associated with. And from the Cuban perspective, you know, they want some compensate. They want to be compensated. You know, I talked to several guys over there, and several officials in the Cuban League, and they say, hey, we raised this kid, I trained this kid, then he leaves and I get nothing. You know, that's not fair. So... They're trying to work on some compromise there, but ultimately it comes to the, the issue how it's going to be resolved is between the two governments. So it's one of those things that's bigger than baseball. So I think from a baseball perspective, you know, younger players are going to come through because they're all the established older guys are already in the big leagues or they're already in the minors. So when Cubans come over, they're going to be the young ones. So guys I talk to a lot, the international scouts who deal with the 16-year-olds, who deal with the 17-year-olds, you know, they're waiting for these Cubans to come over. And at the same time, they know, you know, not much has changed on that regard. I mean, there's been some changes between the government and, you know, Cuban government. But as far as baseball perspective, you know, they're just, uh, these guys, guys still have to defect and they're just kind of waiting on this young crop to come over. 
Jesse, I, I know that, you know, traditionally when, uh, when there's a, a hot prospect there for the taking an elite talent, you know, most GMs are they'd walk barefoot over broken glass to, to get to these guys. But for all the reasons you just outlined, especially with the, with the Cuban players and all the, the baggage and the potential headaches that could come with acquiring somebody from that nation are, is that getting to a point now where most teams or not most teams, but some teams would even say it's just not worth it. And there's so much more talent outside of Cuba that would cause less headaches for us to acquire. Does the stuff with Cuba and with the governments and all the things happening outside of baseball in a broader scope, does it in a sense scare away some of these GMs? You know, I'm not sure if it scares away. I think some GMs and some organizations are probably better at navigating through the paperwork because they have a better understanding of, you know, the process, the residency, you know, where these guys are going to work out, filing for free agency, um, the issues that they're going to come with the future, whether it's going to be, you know, a, a work visa, a visitor's visa, trying to get the families over. I mean, there's definitely a lot that goes into it. And I'm not sure if it scares away some GMs, but I think everybody understands there's a lot of work dealing with Cuban players and Cuban prospects. And maybe some don't want to, but ultimately I think if the player is good enough, if, if you know, teams or organizations, they feel like a guy is worth it, they will go through it. But there's definitely extra steps that, you know, an extra, I wouldn't say characterize them as headaches, but just a lot of extra steps that these guys have to deal with with the Cubans, at least initially as far as, you know, background, signing, residency, and tons of paperwork and all that. Um, again, it goes back to if the player's good enough, you know, scouts and teams and general manager are in the business of acquiring talent, so you kind of have to go for it. And talent, yeah, I was just going to say, Jesse, I mean, talent's talent. And, you know, guys I've talked to, I mean, I think there's some sense that these guys are starting to get pricier than everybody could have imagined, perhaps. But you look at how good a guy like Jose Abreu is or Aroldis Chapman or Puig or Suspedes, or you look at Yohan Moncada, who got a $31.5 million bonus from the Red Sox last year, and they had to pay matching tax and how good he has looked, especially since the second half of last season. He might not be in the minors for much longer than a year. Um, you know, plus, I, I think the other thing that I don't think we're going to see demand for these guys really diminish, even if the supply increases, is that if you're talking about, again, you know, guys who are 23 and have played five years in, in the Serie Nationale in Cuba, and they're exempt from the bonus pools, they're the rare amateur player that you can spend whatever you want for. You, you can't spend whatever you want. On a drafted player, you, you can't go nuts in the draft like you used to be able to. There's limits. Internationally, you can go crazy for a year, um, but then for the next two, you're going to be limited on what you can spend. But if they're, you know, especially if you're talking about a Cuban who's not subject to the bonus pools, uh, you know, I, I could have maxed out my draft pool, my international pool, and be limited who I could sign internationally for two years, and I can go out and sign a guy for $50 million if he's from Cuba and he's 23 years old. So I, yeah. I don't think – I think even as the supply is probably going to increase, I, I don't think we're going to see a lessening demand. We may see a correction perhaps in the market price if, if some of these guys don't pan out. But I, you know, just from talking to people, and I don't talk to nearly as many people as you do, Jesse – you know, you, have, you like you said, you can't you can't just ignore the Cuban market. I mean, they, there may be a lot of red tape and a lot of adjustments that need to be made. You know, once they get here, not just baseball wise, but to a new culture. But any GM or team that's just saying, "Well, I don't want to deal with Cuban players because it's a headache," well, they're making a mistake because it's, it's too talented to ignore those guys. Yep, I 100% agree. And 
and we will see how, as we go forward. I remember having a conversation uh, with Commissioner Manfred in Cuba, and one thing, he was very optimistic about some type of change as far as the way Cuban players are are signed, and whether and, and that was going to be something that was discussed during the next collective bargaining agreement. So we're going to see there. I mean, as you mentioned, everybody is taking notice of you know, Cuban players, how they're signed, the prices. This is definitely not something you can ignore. And it was something the commissioner even addressed that, um, you know, we are. he said he was going to work on a way or the union, MLB, is going to work on a way to uh, define how Cuban players are signed, you know, what, and I think they're considering the market, all kinds of things going into that decision. But it's obvious that, uh, you know, Cuban market isn't something you can ignore. And basically, if you do, you're not doing your job. I mean, I thought it was about, you know, acquiring talent and kind of filling up your system. What do you, you brought up the CBA there, Jesse. What do you think is going to happen in the new CBA? I mean, people have been talking about a possible international draft. You know, obviously this new system, there's the current system in the current CBA, which was different, you know, there, were, there, were no, there was no pool or limits in the past, is radically different than what it was, but it's not really, I don't think anybody's thinking the system's working the way they intended when you're having teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox and Dodgers spending tens and tens of millions of dollars in penalty taxes and, and not really minding to go out and sign talent. Do you, do you think we'll have an international draft that will have everybody subject to it, you know, including the Cubans, or, or do you think we'll adjust the pool system? Uh, I, I know from talking to, to draft agents, there, there's some thought that you know, the MLBPA made a lot of concessions on the draft in the last CBA, the amateur draft. It, it, those guys are not their constituents. It's not a hot-button issue for the actual players who are members of the union, and they got other things in exchange. And the thinking is is that if MLB wants, you know, major change internationally, that they will, give, you know, the union will give that up in exchange for something else. Well, what are you hearing on that front? You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I know the guidelines for signing Cubans under the international guidelines have changed from like, you know, now they're at 20, you have to be, you know, 23 and under and under five years. Before, I think it was uh, under five years of service at the top league in Cuba. I think before it was three years. So there have been some changes. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I don't think the system has worked out the way it had planned with the Cuban players and, you know, people going over their bonuses and, and paying the penalty and, it appears to not to worry too much about it. I mean, Commissioner Manfred, he's been pretty open about wanting a single entry, you know, type of thing for all players. And I think there's mixed reviews in Latin America regarding that. I think some, you know, trainers are concerned, you know, what that will do to their pay cut for these guys that they train if uh, everybody's subjected to you know, a, a single entry type of thing. But then at the other at the other end of the spectrum, there are people in Latin America that say, well, that's great. You know, let's get paid like the domestic guys are paid, whatever that is. Let's get scouted like the domestic guys. Let's get treated like the domestic guys. And, you know, fair pay is fair. You know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a really hot topic in Latin America. You know, every time I go to Dominican or Venezuela or anywhere, they're asking me, hey, what do you hear about the draft? What do you hear? Is there a draft coming? You know, everybody's freaking out about a draft. And then there's other people who say, you know what? it might not be such a bad thing that everybody's treated fairly and everybody goes in, you know, the same way. Well, gentlemen, it should be a uh, fascinating summer, uh, no doubt, first with the uh, amateur draft in June and then the beginning of the international signing period on July 2nd as we 
Just broke it all down. Thanks to uh, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, and Jesse Sanchez, our special guest today on the Pipeline Podcast presented by John Deere. We'll do it again next week. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.